I, I think we all understand that uh, though life is a gift from God, it uh, is difficult. There's a lot of joy and rejoicing that we can experience in life, but there's also a lot of difficulty and pain. And that's why the Lord impressed on me it would be good for us at this time to revisit what the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Philippian church, which is still absolutely applicable to you and I today in the situations that we face. Because difficulties in life, whether it's our own personal lives or in the world, it can breed discontentment. But it really doesn't have to be that way for us personally in our spirit. And the Apostle Paul wrote this statement in this letter, which to me formed the basis of everything, kind of like the theme that I wanted to bring to you as we go through this study in this, in this brief letter. But he makes this statement, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And one of the secrets that Paul learned had to do with our attitude. Last week, I shared with you from chapter one the foundation or the basis of contentment in our life. So if you weren't able to hear that, I hope you'll go back and check it out online uh, or through the podcast. But today, uh, now that we've laid that foundation, we're going to look at some specifics. And I believe that the Apostle Paul is talking really about the importance of our attitude. So when you think about it, of course, attitude is the way that we view life. It's how we think it should be and how we're feeling about life at any given moment. And it is reflected in how we respond to situations that we face in life. And there's an old saying, and I do believe it's true, uh, it goes like this, a bad attitude is like a flat tire. If you don't change it, you won't get very far. And I think we've all seen people like that in our lives. Um, you know, I've said this before, I kind of try to keep in mind, do you make someone happy when you walk into a room, or do you make them happy when you walk out of the room? <laughs> because it all has to do with your attitude. And we all have experienced that, haven't we? There's some people you can be around and you just feel uplifted because they have a positive attitude and it kind of lifts your attitude. And then you could be in a really great mood, having a great day, and you can get around somebody with a bad attitude and all of a sudden, it just deflates. So attitude is so important, not only for ourselves but for others. So I want you to think about today, I want us to think about this together, individually but also collectively, as, as, a, as a church body, as a family of believers, but how is your attitude affecting the people around you? How is your attitude affecting your family, uh, your friends? How is your attitude affecting maybe your work or your place of work? Uh, how is it affecting the church? It really is an important question that we need to think about. So the Apostle Paul, again, as he's addressing this, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I just have the reference on the screen for you. I encourage you to, um, if you want to look at it on your digital devices, as long as you're just looking at the scriptures and not doing stuff on Facebook, you know, <laughs> it's okay. But make use of the technology. But you can find the Word of God so easily on the internet. Uh, you know, you can just type in a search of this passage and it, and it will come up. So, or, or whether you have a printed Bible, whatever you have, I encourage you to get into the Word of God for yourself so you can read it with your own eyes and, and experience it. But uh, if you don't have that, you can listen this morning. I will have some scriptures on the screen. 
But as we get ready for this, remember that the Apostle Paul had been a disbeliever in Jesus. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He was a religious leader in his day, very strict, very devout. And he actually persecuted people who believed in Jesus because he didn't think that that was the right way to go. He felt like he was right and everybody else was wrong that disagreed with him. But Jesus personally appeared to him, rocked his world, so to speak. And after that revelation, he realized that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh that came to visit us and, and then ascended back up into heaven. And so this is what prompted him. He had a change in his spirit and his heart. But because of that now, he was suffering persecution And he was experiencing discontentment around him, but this is why he is writing, even though I'm facing all these difficulties, I'm being persecuted, uh, I've been abused physically, I've been run out of town, I've been arrested, I've had people say all kinds of manner of false accusations against me, but still I can have a peace and a contentment in my heart because I know that I have peace with God and he's offering that peace to you too. So he wanted to encourage other followers of Jesus to not be discouraged. So let's take a look at it now, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, Christ's Holy Spirit, and again, that common sharing is fellowship. I talked about the deeper level of what that means last week, but it's a common sharing at a deep level. Uh, If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or literally attitude, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, some translations say considered it not robbery to be equal with God. Others say considered uh, his, his uh, glory not to be something to, gra- to be grasped or held on to. So I know it's a little bit difficult of that, but it's just basically saying that Christ had this attitude of humility, and he was willing to let go of the glory and everything that he deserved to come into this world that he created, even though it had gone so uh, astray, and he was willing to become one of us so that he could show us the way in his humility and love us. So verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself as nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So the first thing that I want us to really focus on out of this whole section that I read is verse um, 3 there. It mentions or contrasts three kinds of attitudes. And that's what I want to really focus on for a few moments. So the first attitude is selfish ambition. The other attitude he says that we can have is vain conceit. 
And then the other attitude that we can have is humility. And he makes the case that humility is absolutely the best attitude to have in the mindset if you want to learn how to get through a discontented world with a sense of contentment and peace in your heart and in your life. And he says that, and he makes the case that your attitude really sets the tone for the actions that you will do. So attitude does determine action. It responds how it it uh, reflects how you're going to respond to different situations that you face, and it really determines how you're going to respond to things that are within your control, but also things that are beyond your control. And Christ, he is saying, is the absolute right example for us to follow. So let's consider, first of all, what does it mean when he says selfish ambition? Because, again, ambition is not bad. Ambition simply is a motivation to accomplish a goal. It's a drive. It's something that you, you want to see accomplished. So ambition in and of itself is not bad. In fact, Jesus was ambitious. He came into this world with the goal of bringing us into relationship with God, loving us, and accomplishing something even by demonstrating his love by being willing to die for us and then conquer death. That is a great ambition, an amazing ambition. So he was ambitious, but ambition can become bad when we do it with the wrong motivation. When we want to see a goal reached and we really don't care how we get there. We don't care what damage it does or who the consequences are, the kind of the end justifies the means. As long as we get it done, we get it done. That is not the right kind of ambition, and that is selfish ambition. The Greek word there in the original text that's translated into English as selfish ambition, it just simply means this, a desire to put oneself forward in a contentious, partisan, and fractious way. And I, and I know, again, this is just the world we live in, but, and it's not just here in America, it's in other governments as well. But this is what we see in political governing processes throughout the world. So again, we certainly see it in politics in America today. It's always, you know, the left versus the right and us versus them. And, you know, let's line up and let's prove our point and let's prove our point. And now we're going to clash and hopefully our side wins. And when our side wins, the world's going to be wonderful. Wrong. <laughs> and it's not just in America, but it's in other countries as well. But literally, listen to this. In the Greeks, they use this word. It denotes a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Now, we can fall into that, again, just in our personal life, even though we don't want to get involved in politics, so to speak, but just in the things of our life. We, we see something we want, and we, we're going to go after it, and even though we know it can be damaging to those around us, we're like, you know what? I'm just going to pursue it anyway. And that is not going to lead to contentment in your life, even when you achieve your goal. And it's certainly not going to lead to contentment in the lives of those around you. So your attitude needs to change. It needs to be changed from that selfish ambition. So one of the things as I was thinking about this, of even sometimes in our desire to get what we think we want, the effort to try to protect that or maintain it requires so much effort that we become unhappy and discontent, and we're never really satisfied. So years ago, uh, during the summertime, we had a hummingbird feeder out on our front porch. Any of you that have ever done that, and if you've seen the hummingbirds, you know, they're very territorial. And uh, so at that time, we still had a tree in our front yard, and it was a good year for hummingbirds. We really enjoyed seeing them come in, but man, they would fight and fuss over the feeder. And there was this one particular hummingbird that really was kind of amusing to watch. 
But that bird would come in to the feeder and it would feed when no other bird was around. And then I would watch it and it would fly from the feeder and it would go up and it would land in a branch in the tree, which was, to me, was kind of cool because, you know, I always see hummingbirds fly to feeders and it's like they disappear. It's like, where do they go? But they do go to trees and bushes and things to hang out and rest. Well, anyway, I saw where this hummingbird went and it perched itself on a, a branch in the tree and it was where it could overlook the feeder. And as soon as another hummingbird would come in and start to feed on the feeder, that thing would fly out of there and attack it. And it's like, get out of here. This is my feeder. And they'd buzz around and then one would go off. And then that one, once it chased off the person, the, the person listed, the hummingbird would fly back up and land on the same branch. And it would just watch. <laughs> and as soon as another one came in, <laughs> attack. And it would go down. And, and this went on literally for, for like a half an hour I was watching this thing. And then... It got so protective that it decided the tree wasn't close enough, so it perched itself on, we had a hanging plant on the front porch, like a fern, you know, it was hanging baskets. It decided to perch itself on the fern where it could get closer <laughs> and watch. And sure enough, every time another bird came, that hummingbird came and attacked it. And this is what I thought. There was so much food in that hummingbird feeder that... 10 birds could have come and all fed at the same time and they would have all had more than enough. And there was enough holes around the feeder that literally there could have been seven at least hummingbirds if they had just had peace with each other. That they could have come, got their bellies full, been all happy and flown off and it's all good. But no, there was that selfish ambition. And I thought literally as I looked at it, I'm like, man, that is a lot like we are as people. You know, we, 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 we feel like we work hard for something. And really, I mean, that hummingbird feeder was a gift. I'm, I'm going to get really kind of spiritual here now. It was a gift of grace by my wife and I. I bought the feeder. She fixed the food, put it in, we set it out. The birds didn't do a thing to deserve that food. It was a gift of grace, just like salvation and forgiveness with God. It's a free gift. Or other things in life that we get. And then once we get it, though, as a gift, boy, we want to, we got to protect it. We got to guard it. We get upset if, if we feel like other, everybody else is getting in our territory. And it breeds discontentment. That, that hummingbird spent more energy trying to protect that food instead of just enjoying it and, and letting it be shared. So you get the idea. So we got to be careful of that attitude. And that is the attitude that Jesus set for us in humility to say, I'm not just looking out for myself. I care about everyone and so I want to benefit everyone in giving of my life. And that is why we should have that same type of attitude. The second attitude that's not healthy is vain conceit. And what this means, the, again, the Greek word there, uh, when you translate it into English, but the Greeks use this word, it literally means a groundless self-esteem, an empty pride, um, a selfish kind of pride. Now, again, we use pride in different ways, and a when you feel satisfied or pleased with something, like if you say, I'm really proud of my child, there's nothing wrong with that because that's just showing, hey, I feel, I feel happy and I'm pleased with what my child is doing or whatever. So when we use pride in that way, that's not a bad thing. But oftentimes we use pride in a way of it's like, yeah, by golly, I've accomplished this and I've done it and now look at me and so I'm proud of this. And that is kind of moving now into vain conceit. It's not really a healthy attitude to have. And uh, so again, it's an excessively favorable opinion of your own ability, importance, intelligence, or even morality. So a person with vain conceit is usually quick to notice when they've been offended in some way. 
And probably you know some people like this. Um, do you know somebody that seems to be just quick to be offended over the least little thing? Or it's almost like they're just looking for something that they can be offended about. And then they want to make their point. So this can be a sign of a condition in our heart of, of reaching this vain conceit. I want to share with you a story. Uh, some years ago, uh, I came across this. And it's an example of two men that came to the same church on the same Sunday morning and what they experienced. So here you go. Jim Smith went to church on Sunday morning. He didn't like the way the music was played during the prelude. It was too loud, and he scowled. He saw a teenager talking with everybody else when they were supposed to be bowed in prayer, and he thought, well, that's typical. During the offering time, he felt like the usher was watching to see what he put in the offering plate, and it just made him boil. He noticed the preacher making a slip of the tongue five times in the sermon by actual count. As he slipped out through the side door during the closing hymn, he thought to himself, never again. What a bunch of bumbling, crude hypocrites. Now, Ron Jones went to that same church on the same Sunday morning in the same service. He heard the musicians play an arrangement of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, and he was thrilled by the majesty of it. He heard a young girl take a moment in the service to tell about the difference her faith makes in her life. And he was glad to see that in the church budget, part of the offering was going to help feed hungry children in Nigeria. And he especially appreciated the sermon that Sunday because it answered a question that had bothered him for a long time. He thought as he walked out the doors of the church, how can a person come here and not feel the presence of God? <laughs> what was the difference in the two men? Same service, same elements. It's all about the attitude. Your attitude really does, does determine if you're going to be receptive to something positive in your life that God wants to do or if you want nothing to do with it. So we need to make sure that we're being aware of our own attitude. Because again, some people go through life being offended and aggravated, and others go through life being humble and appreciative. So which are you? And which one really do you think is more contented in life? A humble person is generally thankful for what they have. Even if they worked hard for it, they realize that God's given them the health to do it, given them strength and ability. And so really, there's just this heart of gratitude and appreciation for the blessings that we have. And that really, when it comes right down to it, we don't really deserve anything. I mean, yeah, it's okay to work for it and get it. I mean, I, I get that. But it's not a sense of entitlement. Um, we're grateful for what we have if we have a spirit of humility, and we want to be able to share that with others. So every time that we are dissatisfied with what we have, um, it can be a form of vain conceit or selfish pride, because really, in a way, I think what we're saying is, I deserve more. I deserve better treatment. I deserve this. I deserve that. And again, humility. What does that word mean? When you translate that, the original Greek... This word that's translated into English as humility, it means having a modest opinion of yourself. In other words, not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Humility is not walking around with your head down saying, I'm no good, I'm miserable, I'm a louse. Uh, that is not humility. That's self-pity. Humility is having an accurate view of yourself to say, you know, I'm not, I, know I understand, I don't know it all, I don't have it all, but I understand who I am. But I also understand that I can learn and grow. And so I want to do that. I want to be teachable. And I want to continue to improve. And I, want, I would like to do better. That is more of an attitude of humility. 
Jesus was the most powerful person to ever walk this earth because he created it and then came into his creation. And yet he exemplified and demonstrated for us what it means to be humble in the way that he loved people and treated them. He treated them with dignity and respect, with mercy and forgiveness. He held people accountable, but then he also showed how much he loves all of us regardless by literally dying for us. Jesus is the one that said, greater love has no one than this, than a person lay down their life for their friends. And then Jesus said, I've called you friends. And he died on the cross for us. Jesus, I don't know if you really comprehend this, Jesus wants to be your friend. And he wants you to be his friend in return. But what friends do is they let people make choices. They don't, they don't force themselves on you. And so Jesus is offering this invitation to say, I love you so much. I gave my life for you. I rose again. I want to be your friend, but you need to make up your mind. Do you want to be my friend? And that's humility. And so this is the way that we should live in life. So in verse 4 of Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. So our attitude does direct our actions. Again, selfish ambition, vain conceit, we're going to tend to put ourselves first and, you know, we'll worry about other people later. I got to take care of me first, me first, me first. And an attitude of humility is like, yeah, I need to take care of myself, obviously, because I don't want to become a burden to other people. But as I'm taking care of myself, I want to help other people as best I can. And that to me, and not just to me, but biblically, is a more healthy way to live. And it's a way to live a more contented life rather than feeling like you've got to fight and strive for everything you got and then fight to keep it. So if you have a selfish attitude, it leads to selfish actions. If you have vain conceit or arrogance, that leads to foolish actions because you think that you know more than other people do and that your way is right, and so by golly, you're going to do it anyway. And if you have humility, though, you remain teachable, you listen, you consider not only what you want and need, but you consider what those around you want and need, and then you seek to move forward in a way that's good for everybody. And I will take a moment to just sidebar here. Uh, again, this sermon is not about anything that's going on in the church, but the Word of God is absolutely applicable to every situation in our life. So I don't know how the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you right now through this message of things in your work or your home life or whatever it is. I trust His leading in that. But I will say that in the life of the church right now at Porterfield, we're faced with some important decisions as we move into the fall. We're praying about what's going to be best as far as the starting time for our early service. We've done a temporary change to kind of evaluate, see is that making things better for people or worse for people? So we're still evaluating that. We're praying. We're wanting to learn and listen. We don't have our minds made up that one way is better than another, but we're seeking wisdom. And then when it comes to education space, we're faced with a decision. I'm not going to go into that decision. We've talked about it at business meetings and whatnot, but we're all working together to say what's going to be good for the overall vision of the church, purpose of the church, so that we can use our finances wisely. And so we're looking into that. And again, we've all got to be open to not just seeing things from our viewpoint, but considering all viewpoints, praying together, and then working together in humility and love, asking God to direct us. And it's, you know, it's easy to say, it's tough to do, and it is a process, though, that we have to work out. And I believe God's going to help us do that. So again, this, ser this sermon was not directed because of that, but I felt the timeliness of it as I'm doing it. I'm like, wow, this actually applies right now to something we're going through in the life of the church. And I pray that we'll all be able to stay together through it and be harmonious and, and feel positive about the future. 
So again, verse 5, let this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I'm reading a little different translation. Again, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, not self-serving. He was willing in humility to, to just say, I'm going to step down and I want to go into this world that I created. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. You see, sometimes humility requires us to make sacrifice. Even something that we feel is valuable to us, we're willing to sacrifice it and say, you know what, for the greater good, I'm willing to let this go. That's, that is the opposite of vain conceit and, uh, and uh, our arrogance um, and our uh, selfish ambition. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has also exalted him. See, here's the thing. God rewards humility. Throughout the Bible, uh, in the New Testament especially, it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is looking for hearts that are just simply humble, and instead of shaking their fist at God and being angry and upset. And by the way, God can handle your anger. I mean, we read all through the Old Testament, there were great men of God that got upset with God, questioned God, angry with God. Job was one of them. And, you know, God's like, sorry you're upset, but I'm still God. It's not changing anything. You know, he can, he can handle your anger. And, but he still offers grace, and he offers help, and he wants us to work through those things, through those emotions. But anyway, so God rewards humility. Um, so again, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. The Scripture also says that if we're going to resist the devil, first of all, we have to submit to God and humble ourselves before him. And then we can resist the devil and the devil will flee from us because we're not fighting him in our own strength. We're fighting him by the power of Christ working in us. And we have that spirit of humility and genuinely desiring to want him to help change us and to change us. So therefore, God has highly exalted him, talking about Christ, because he humbled himself. And he's given the name uh, which is above every name at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's move on now. In light of all of this, I spent a lot of time on that because that really is the most important key, but, but this is really important now, these next couple of verses, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is really important. Paul does not say, because we know these things, that you got to have the right attitude um, in order to earn and keep your salvation. And by the way, salvation means this. The word salvation that we use, it means to receive God's grace and forgiveness through Christ that he offers and therefore, if we do that, we are saved or spared from God's judgment, not only in this life, but when we die, to be separated from God eternally because we've rejected the, the gift that he's given us in Christ. So we're saved from that judgment and that eternal punishment or separation from God. But there's the other side of this that we often think about. We always put the, the emphasis on the negative, well, I'm saved from hell or I'm saved from eternity separated from God. But we forget, really, the most important thing is of what we're saved for. 
When I put money in the bank in the savings account, I'm not saying I've rescued it from the hands of my collectors. <laughs> I put it in the savings because I'm saving it for something good for the future that I want to use it for. So we're saved from judgment, but we're saved for something good. And this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to use our life for him in this life to glorify him. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation because salvation is a gift. But we're, we need to learn to work it out, to work with it. What do I do with this gift now that I've received it? So here's another illustration. A few years back, I can't remember if it was my birth, I think it was for my birthday, but at that time we had a wood stove, so we were cutting wood a lot, and in the winter, of course, we'd burn the wood in the wood stove. So we'd get wood in, and we'd, I would split it and have people help me, and we'd cut it up. Anyway, so my wife, Julie, got me a chainsaw and gave it to me as a gift. Now, here's what I want you to understand. She worked for that gift. She paid for that gift. She brought it home, and she presented it to me as a gift. I did not do a thing to get that gift. It, she paid for it, bought it, and presented it to me. What I needed to do was receive the gift, which I did. So I didn't work for the chainsaw, but once I got it, I had to learn how to work with it. Because if I would have just stuck it in the storage building and said, well, that's nice, honey, thanks, but, you know, I'm going to do something else, it would have done me no good. It would have still been mine. Nobody took it from me, but I would have not used it for the purpose it was intended. And this is how it is with forgiveness and salvation in our life with God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we ask Christ into our life and we say, I'm glad I'm saved from God's judgment. Now I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. And we, we leave that gift of salvation. We don't realize what we've been saved for, and we're not learning to work it out. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is being a student of Jesus and his word and learning how to apply it. Just like me, even though I'd run a chainsaw before, I um, had to learn how to work with this particular chainsaw. So I'm actually a guy that reads the instructions but I read about how to properly maintain it, what to do with the, the chainsaw blades, how to sharpen it, you know, all that stuff. It took a little bit of effort, but because I did that, I learned how to work out with that chainsaw, and I was able to cut wood and put it in our wood stove, and it kept us warm during the winter. You see what I'm saying? There was a real benefit from that. And so that's what we need to learn to do with our salvation in Christ. It's not something you just do, you get it done, and you get on with your life. You're continually, every day, learning how to live in this newness of life. That's what we saw this morning with Tara getting baptized. She's just on the beginning of the journey. She's saying, yeah, I want to learn how to work out this salvation, how to, how to live for Jesus and how to honor him with my life and all of those things. So that's what it means. And working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is a call to, us to be serious about our relationship with Jesus. So again, it is to seek to do specifically, specifically what God has gifted and called you to do with your life without comparing yourself or your circumstances to others. And if you will begin to do that, you'll learn to be more contented because instead of looking at what everybody else is going through, and sometimes it can be comforting to be encouraged if people have gone through rough times and they want to help you, but instead of looking and comparing yourself to others, if you just keep your eyes on the Lord and say, Lord, help me today, you know, I'm, I'm still learning, help me you'll begin to find more of a sense of contentment. So we need to realize, and this is what Paul said, as we're working out our salvation, not working for it, working it out, we need to realize it's God who is working in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
And we also need to remember what Paul had written just a, a little bit earlier in this letter in chapter 1. He said that he was confident that Jesus Christ would be able to complete the good work that he began in you until the day that he returns or into the, until the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So that can give us confidence. So here's a key. Contentment comes from a choice. That might sound odd, but it really is. It is a choice. Contentment comes from a choice to be humble and remain teachable. Jesus even taught this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. His words are recorded. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be teachable. Don't think you know it all. Don't think you've heard it all before. Learn how to apply Christ's teaching to your life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest. Rest for your soul. That's contentment in a discontented world. So again, that's why Paul writes a little later in this letter. It forms the basis of this whole sermon series I'm doing in Philippians 4, 12 through 13. I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret of being content. You see, Paul remained teachable. And so he was able to learn this. I've learned the secret of contentment. In any and every situation, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse gets misquoted sometimes when we're trying to do something physical in life, whether it's in athletics or, you know, whatever we're doing, an endeavor. We, you know, I see, and I'm not getting on to you if you've used that verse because the principle is there that we're able to do things with Christ's help in our life that we normally can't do. But that doesn't mean you're going to become like Superman or Superwoman and all of a sudden you're going to do all these great feats. Now, some of you might get gifted to do miraculous things, but it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be that way. But what Paul is saying here, he, this use of this phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is talking about facing trials of life. When you've got a bad medical diagnosis and you're facing a serious illness or a loved one has died and you don't know what you're going to do next, what next steps you're going to take, or you've just lost your job, or you've had something devastating happen in your life emotionally, physically, what Paul is saying is, I can get through this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's describing here, again, this contentment that we can experience, that the, a peace that the world cannot give that we can find in Christ. But it all comes through what Christ does in us. And then lastly this morning, verses 14 through 16. <laughs> this one is easier said than done. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, you know, because I know I've been guilty of it, uh, you know, even recently. So it's a reminder because it's all about our attitude. And it doesn't say do some things without grumbling. Look at it. He says do everything. That's got to be our attitude. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Being content in a discontented world. Paul is not saying that if you do everything without grumbling and complaining, that all of a sudden now you've become pure and that's the way you gain your way into perfection with God. What he is saying is, as you learn to have Christ's Spirit working in you and you're beginning to learn to adjust your attitude, even though it could be tough and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to grumble. I'm not going to complain. And again, it's okay to express, uh, you know, viewpoints that's not the same as grumbling or arguing uh, in a contentious way. Remember, this is talking about contention. 
But we need to have that attitude of I'm going to get along and I want to see good happen here, so I'm going to do my part. Anyway, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And what he is saying is if we do that, we're going to begin to show ourselves so much different than the rest of the world that we're going to shine like lights. People are going to say, well, that person really seems to be positive and upbeat. What is it, you know, about them? And it's an opportunity for us to glorify Christ and say, well, on my own, I couldn't do this, but I'm learning with Christ's help, you know, to respond in ways that I should. So do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children. And this is talking about blameless and pure from other people's perspective. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them, those of your generation, like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And that's what I want to close with today holding firmly to the word of life. We're living in a day and age where the word of God is available to us like never before. I mentioned it this morning. You can get on your mobile device and you can type in a scripture and it pops up and you can read it. The word of God has been never available like it is today throughout the world. And yet we are living in a time in our world when people are so biblically illiterate. I didn't say they're stupid, illiterate. They're uneducated, they're not reading it, they're not taking advantage of it. We're letting other things fill our mind and our thought life, and then we wonder why we're discontented when we have the word of life before us that anyone can read at any time and ask God to give us wisdom and guidance in it. So let me ask you, what is your attitude toward the scriptures? Oh, I've already read it, I know what it says. Hmm. Better check your attitude. Kind of sounds like fame mm, conceit to me. Uh, well, it's too hard to do, and you know I got other things I need to do. It's really important. Mm, sounds like selfish ambition to me. But what about humility? You know what? Yeah, <laughs> there's a, so much I don't know. I really need to learn this. And you start taking steps to do it. Oh, now you're going to start learning how to begin to experience contentment in a discontented world. So what is your attitude toward the word of life, the word of God? What's your attitude toward the church and people? When I say the church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people. What's your attitude toward your family, your work? It really is important. Would you stand? And we're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to move right into a time of communion. But I want you to stand. You've been great. You've been listening well. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to move into communion, and we'll... Uh, finish our worship time this morning. Lord Jesus, it's, it is such a privilege for me to be able to, number one, just be able to read your word and to learn from it. All these years, I'm grateful for the people in my life that you've placed around me, not just here in the Mid-Ohio Valley, but when we moved around when I was young. It seemed like no matter where we went, there were people who believed in you and who loved you and wanted to teach a word and they weren't perfect people and neither are we but they had an attitude of wanting to learn and help and share and I thank you for those people in my life and I thank you for your Holy Spirit working through them to touch me and Lord it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to share your word today with those that are listening here in person and online and wherever they are and I thank you for that I'm not worthy of it Lord but I'm really grateful and uh, so, Lord, I pray that you'll continue to help me with my attitude. And I pray that you'll help all of us, Lord, who's listened to this message today, that our attitude would be one 
in regards to this message even today that we want to learn, we want to remain teachable, we want to apply it to our lives. Help us to recognize selfish ambition and vain conceit and how it's damaging to us and how that really doesn't bring contentment in our life because the world's full of those kind of attitudes and the world is so discontented. So thank you, Jesus, that you have offered to give your peace to us through your life, death, and resurrection, and through your word. And if there's anyone listening to the message today, I just pray your spirit would speak to them right now where they stand, where they sit, wherever they are. Let them know you love them, and you want them to just simply open their life to you and trust you, to ask you to forgive them, to come into their life. And Lord, then you make the changes and help them to begin to learn to live for you. Um, And if anyone does that, Lord, help them have the courage to share it with someone else just like Tara did today and just like so many others have done in in the past. So prepare our hearts now as we come into this time of communion and as we remember your humility and what you have done for the good of all of us through your love, your life, death, and resurrection. And I thank you for all of this, Lord, in your precious name.